Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. For most of us, the unmistakable voice of David Edinburgh has narrated wildlife documentaries for our entire lives. Over the years, he has observed and described the behaviours of scores of creatures of all shapes and sizes, and as we sit transfixed by their often bizarre and peculiar behaviours, we think, how fascinating, why do they do that? How ingenious, how do they know? We intuit that creatures, great and smaller, something akin to automatons. They don't think and feel like we do. Rather, they follow rote actions, pre-programmed sequences of behaviour applicable to different situations, like feeding, fighting and mating. Animals appear to us to act on instinct alone, able to perform complex and highly self-sufficient tasks from almost as soon as they are born or emerge from their eggs. The migratory bar-tailed godwit, for instance, hatches just 22 days after the eggs were laid and leaves the nest almost immediately, and within a month they are on their own, ready to begin an 11,000 kilometre flight from Alaska to New Zealand. Yet we still consider this behaviour as unconscious, as highly sophisticated as it is. The godwit doesn't get anxious about its journey or wonder if it will have enough food. It just gets on with life. Yet we humans place ourselves higher up on the evolutionary pecking order because we have an evolved level of consciousness and the ability to reason, rationalise and have free will. We, Homo sapiens, are superior to all other animals because we act not exclusively on instinct. We have the ability to choose different paths, even those which might not be in our best interest. Yes, we humans are special. Well, if you think there's something off about this assertion, then you wouldn't be alone. Every social psychologist and anthropologist would feel much the same. Because the reality is, we humans are as much instinct-driven as our lesser evolved brethren in the animal kingdom. The difference is, we are often not even aware of how susceptible we are to pre-programmed patterns of behaviour. The ease with which we can be influenced by subtle and not-so-subtle social cues and external factors. In the next two episodes, we are going to explore the psychology of social influence. It's a big topic fundamental to social psychology, and entire podcasts are dedicated to it. But in the usual style of the Here and Now podcast, we're going to just take a high-level flyby of several key topics to merely introduce the concepts, their history, and some of the research that has led to our knowledge of these principles, and backed up by a few examples taken from the real world. Social psychology is a fascinating discipline that attempts to understand the nuance of human behaviour. But the thing about principles from social psychology is they often seem obvious, common knowledge. When I was describing one of these to my wife recently, she commented, Duh, everyone knows that. And she was right. A lot of it seems blatantly obvious. In fact, marketing gurus and religious groups and even used car salesmen have been employing tactics that take advantage of our psychology since Adam was a cowboy. But while we might have a good feel for social psychology, understanding why we behave the way we do is a little more complicated. Over the years, social psychologists have devised all manner of intriguing and ingenious experiments to identify the guiding principles of our behaviour, and we'll explore several of these here. So let's begin. One of the leading social psychologists of our time is Robert Cialdini. His book Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion has sold millions of copies and is now the key reference material on the topic and I'm going to draw heavily from it in this episode. 
Over the course of 35 years of research and work in the field of social psychology, Cialdini identified six key principles of social influence. Common to all six principles is our seeming inability to resist them. They act beyond our conscious ability to understand or overpower the influence they have over us. And the first of these principles I've described briefly in an earlier episode, it's the principle of reciprocation. The principle of reciprocation is a powerful one. We just can't seem to shake the feeling of being indebted to someone, and this can be an extremely effective tool of social influence. The example I described earlier was about raffle tickets. It went like this. Two people are rating artwork in a gallery. One of them is in on the experiment, the accomplice. During a short break, the accomplice leaves the room and returns with two cokes and offers one to the unwitting subject. And a short while later, the accomplice asks if the other rater would like to purchase some raffle tickets. The rater feels indebted to the accomplice, even though they did nothing to cause the situation. The very fact of the accomplice offering an unsolicited favour by bringing the rater a cold drink was enough to create the imbalance or an imbalance in their relationship. The experiment was then adjusted with new subjects using the exact same situation, but this time the accomplice left. Uh, when they came back, they didn't bring the cold drink. In this case, the subjects would purchase half as many raffle tickets as those who were given a cold drink. But even more interesting than that is that the sense of indebtedness had nothing to do with what the subjects thought of the accomplice. Regardless of whether subjects liked the accomplice or not, they still purchased more tickets if they were the recipient of the favour of the cold drink. Most of us will have experienced the principle of reciprocity at our local supermarket. Who can resist the free samples of a new product, say a new type of chocolate, cheese or crackers? If we walk past the free sample tray and pick one up on our way th through, then we don't think much more of it. But if an assistant offers us the sample and engages with us, even with just a smiling face, the situation changes. We are now indebted to the assistant and are far more likely to purchase the box of crackers or pack of cheese, even if we didn't really like the sample that much. We see this a lot in the world of online commerce today, where we can sign up for a free 7 or say 30 day trial of an app, maybe Strava, Apple Music or Spotify. The trick is, they have our credit card details already, but we are told repeatedly that we can cancel the subscription at any time. We will only be charged after the trial is ended. We have nothing to lose, we reason. We may as well give it a try. Aside from the fact that cancelling the pending subscription is often difficult and hidden behind numerous hard-to-navigate menus, the real principle at play here is the principle of reciprocity. Once we have committed to the free trial, we have a debt to pay, and just like a Lannister, we always pay our debts. Perhaps the most interesting feature of the principle of reciprocity is that it is asymmetrical. A repayment of the social debt is typically far more than the original favour given. This is easy to see in relation to the supermarket sample example. The sample is worth just a few cents. The product that we purchase is worth a few dollars. And this applies in pretty much all situations. In the art rater experiment, the can of Coke cost only 50 cents, but subjects would easily buy 5 or $10 worth of raffle tickets, a massive return on investment for a simple, unsolicited favour. And let's say I buy you a beer, and then we go out for dinner. You'll be more likely to pay for dinner, even though I only spend a few dollars on a pint. It's just the way it works. I'll get this one, you get the next one, you say. But that day may never come. It is an astute person who remembers that they are owed money, but almost everybody remembers an unpaid debt. There is an interesting evolutionary purpose to reciprocity described by anthropologists. In order for people to cooperate and form societies, 
unwritten laws such as this must exist to ensure we conform to a social code. In the case of reciprocation, it allows individuals to make the first move, to offer a favour or advantage to another in the knowledge that a bond of trust is being unconsciously formed. The culture of gift-giving is embedded deep within the value systems of many societies, and failure to comply with this norm leads to social exclusion and punishment by our peers. And the principle of reciprocation also has awkward implications for women. It's a Hollywood cliché for a man to ask a woman in a bar if he can buy her a drink, and that if she accepts, she is at least in principle accepting his advance. In this way, women intuitively decline such offers or pay for their own meal or drinks to avoid being indebted to the man and accepting the implication that she can repay the debt in a currency other than money. A man may make such an advance thinking it is just courteous or socially expected that he make such an offer, but the woman is far more astute. She intuits the social pull of the principle of reciprocity, and rather than feel indebted to the man and his expectation of reciprocation, she avoids the situation by declining his offer or by buying her own drink. And this tactic can be employed by all of us when we detect the principle of reciprocation at work. Politely declining a favour or gift may seem impolite, but it at least avoids being drawn in by the social pull of reciprocity, which will almost inevitably lead us to invest more in a social exchange than we have the ability to rationally control. The principle of uh, reciprocation also appears in cases of concession. I'll quote Cialdini directly here. He says, I was walking down the street when I was approached by an 11 or 12-year-old boy. He introduced himself and said he was selling tickets to the annual Boy Scout circus to be held on the upcoming Saturday night. He asked if I wished to buy any tickets at $5 a piece. Since one of the last places I wanted to spend Saturday evening was with the Boy Scouts, I declined. Well, he said, if you don't want to buy any tickets, how about buying some of our chocolate bars? They're only $1 each. I brought a couple and right away realised that something noteworthy had happened. I knew that to, that to be the case because A, I do not like chocolate bars and B, I do like dollars. And C, I was standing there with two of his chocolate bars, and D, he was walking away with two of my dollars. Giordini realised that reciprocity applies not just to indebtedness for a tangible exchange, but also to concession. The Boy Scout had made a concession to Cialdini by lowering his offer from the tickets to the chocolate bar. Cialdini felt obliged to buy the chocolate as acknowledgement for the concession made by the boy. One concession demands another in return to settle the debt. You might have heard of this in relation to negotiation. Always make the first offer and make it unreasonably high, they say. That approach serves a couple of purposes, which we won't go into now, but one reason is that when the counter-offer is made, we can settle on a lower figure which is closer to what we actually wanted as we are making a concession and the other party knows it, even if our first figure was unreasonably high. The other party feels obliged to meet our figure to satisfy the principle of reciprocity and re-establish balance. And the great thing about negotiating like this is both parties walk away satisfied, thinking that they got a good deal. A similarly powerful principle which demands us to maintain balance is the principle of commitment and consistency. Quite simply, when we make a commitment to a point of view, we tend to stick to it, and our confidence in our decision grows. For instance, voters report higher confidence that their chosen candidate will win after voting than before, or that our chosen racehorse has a better chance of winning after we've placed our bet. We also tend to seek out information that reaffirms our decision, a cognitive bias known as confirmation bias, and we work to keep our beliefs consistent even when presented with information to the contrary. 
Consistency is valued in society, while inconsistency is rejected. We trust those whom we see as consistent and reliable. It throws us when someone acts in an apparently random, erratic or conflicting way. In fact, people who behave this way are often seen as having something wrong with them, perhaps a mental health issue, whereas consistency is a trait associated with stability, trustworthiness and honesty. We expect consistency from our doctors and pilots, some of the most trusted professionals. But consistent behaviour is not necessarily something we should celebrate. A lot of the time our behaviours, viewpoints and decisions are wrong, but it, and it would be best to change them. But to do so presents a challenge. Cialdini describes two reasons for why we desire consistency in our actions and behaviours. The first is that we are lazy. It requires far less mental energy to continue along our chosen path than to review a range of information and consider alternatives. The second is that we might not want to know the truth even if we begin to suspect that we are wrong. It either hurts too much or it will send us down a troubling path where we realise the implications of our incorrect viewpoint and we must face up to the bad choices we've made, the embarrassment of such a realisation and the long, slow path to redemption. We'd rather keep thinking we are right than have to start all over again and reinvent our position from an entirely different perspective and re-establish consistency with a new point of view. And such a change may not be welcomed by our social network. Someone who changes their mind might be appreciated by the psychologically enlightened for what it really is, an important and difficult step which shows true willingness to embrace new or alternative ideas. But many will simply lose trust and confidence in the person for being a flip-flopper. By demanding consistency as a social rule, we do not encourage open-mindedness, yet we are just as quick to label someone as stubborn or pig-headed. But we don't resist this demand either. We establish our identity and constantly reinforce it through consistent behaviour that conforms to our conceptualization of who we are and who we want other people to see. But consistency acts in ways that does benefit us as well. Like when someone makes a public commitment, you may have seen one of these pledges doing the rounds on social media lately. Do 25 push-ups a day for 25 days to raise awareness of veteran suicides. A worthy cause indeed. A friend recently made this commitment to the task, and sure enough, every day he banged out 25 push-ups. He may have started thinking on day 4 or 5 that this was actually a bit of a pain, but he had made a public commitment, and now there was almost no way he could not see it through. And so he did. Nice job, Matt. Cialdini cites a wide range of examples of how the rule of consistency and commitment has been exploited by salespeople through the ages. One of these he terms throwing the low ball. The example he uses describes a car salesman who offers a car up at an unreasonably low price. The purchaser jumps on the deal, thinking it is too good to refuse, while that little voice in the back of her head is thinking, if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And sure enough, the salesman has no intention of letting the car go at such a low price. But once he has her committed to purchasing the car, he can begin to recoup his costs using a variety of other sales techniques, from ancillary charges and extended warranty or other items the purchaser doesn't really need. The important part of the transaction was getting the purchaser to make the commitment. Everything that happens next will be considered separately to the original commitment. One way to avoid such manoeuvres is to listen to your heart. Research has shown that we tend to experience uh, the feeling of something a split second before we think about it. In that briefest of moments before we commit to the decision, our heart tells us how we really feel. The trick is to pay attention to those intuitive insights. When the purchaser knows the deal is a bit off, they sense they are being taken for a ride. 
The little voice says, this is not really a good deal, but the brain forges ahead, attempting to maintain consistency and integrity to the commitment made. The principle of reciprocity may also have helped to paint us into this figurative corner. Listening to that inner voice of reason, your true feelings, is important and may save you not only a lot of money, but also a lot of pain if the stakes involve affairs of the heart. The final principle we'll discuss in this episode is the principle of social proof. There are a few ways to think about it. We might characterise social proof as peer pressure or herd behaviour. Quite simply, when we see others doing something, we tend to emulate their behaviour. We need to fit in. Have you ever found yourself among a group of friends or acquaintances laughing at a joke, but you have no idea what you were laughing about? You didn't get it or you didn't hear it, but everyone else is laughing raucously and it would kill the moment to interrupt and ask for clarification. So what do you do? You join in and have a good laugh. Social proof tells us how to behave in group situations. The actions and behaviours of the group endorse the appropriate way to act, and we don't question it. It's a case of, can't beat him, join him. Social proof extends to almost all aspects of social behaviour. What we wear, the music we listen to, the types of cars we drive, or how we cover all of these things. But it also extends to how we respond in different situations. One of the most well-known accounts of this behaviour occurred on a March night in 1964. A young woman, Catherine, or Kitty as she was known, Genovese, was making her way home to her apartment in the Bronx when she was attacked. Over the course of 30 minutes, she was stabbed, raped, and stabbed again, eventually succumbing to her injuries. As horrific as this crime was, the real story that followed was the collective inaction of 38 witnesses who observed the incident from their apartments and failed to act. Social psychologists John Daly and Bib Latane designed a series of experiments in an attempt to understand this behaviour. How could 38 witnesses to such a callous act fail to intervene or even call the police? The public condemned the lack of action as a consequence of an increasingly detached and apathetic inner-city society. It was a defence mechanism of people crammed together in urban environments. You just keep yourself to yourself and you don't pay attention or get involved in other people's business. But this explanation seemed unsatisfying. Surely there must be more to it. Dali and Atane's first experiment placed a subject in a room in which smoke began to appear under the door. In all cases, the subject quickly went for help. But then an interesting thing happened. They now put the subject among a group of four or five others, people who were in on the experiment. And these people were told not to act when the smoke appeared. And in almost every case, the subject also failed to act. The subject looked to see what everyone else was doing, and as they did not appear concerned or failed to take action, the principle of social proof meant they also accepted the situation. They put together another experiment where a person collapsed with an epileptic seizure, and the same thing happened. The more people that were present, the less likely it was that someone would take action, as responsibility was diffused among each individual to the point that no one felt compelled to act. Latana and Dali's findings became known as the bystander effect. The more people witness to a situation, the less likely they are to act. This revelation was considered a nuance of human behaviour, which they described as pluralistic ignorance. The bystander effect has since become one of the most highly replicated effects in all of social psychology. But the truth of the Kitty Genovese murder was actually far less intriguing. On closer analysis, it turned out only a handful of people actually witnessed some parts of the attack, and uh, no one person saw it all, or could even determine exactly what was going on. 
911 did not exist in those days, so when one resident did call the local police station, they were hung up on as a crank call. Another witness went to Kitty's aid as she lay dying in the lobby of her apartment building. The principle of social proof and the bystander effect were probably not at all relevant to this case, although the resulting research informed a field of social psychology that persists today. One factor which does seem to attenuate the bystander effect is uncertainty. When it is not exactly clear what is going on, people are far less likely to act when in a group. However, when the circumstances are obvious, action happens most of the time. For instance, in 1995, terrorists planted the deadly nerve agent Siren in the Tokyo subway system. In the following excerpt from Haruki Murakami's book on the attack titled Underground, the victim of the attack describes his experience. Now this will be a fairly long reading, but it is quite compelling and demonstrates that uncertainty influences the bystander effect. I always took the first or second car from the front of the train on the Hibiya line. As soon as I changed in Hachibori, there was an announcement. Some passengers have been taken ill. We will stop the train at the next station. Thank you for your cooperation. When the train stopped at the station, the doors opened and wham, four people fell flat out from the car right behind mine, straight out the door. A station attendant came over, like they do when someone faints, but they were trying to lift up the people, which seemed odd. That's when the panic started. A station attendant was shouting into a mic, Ambulance! Ambulance! Then it was, Poison gas! Everyone off the train! Go to the ticket barrier and head straight above ground. I didn't run. I wonder why. I was kind of unfocused. I didn't get off onto the platform, thinking I ought to sit down. I wasn't really paying much attention. There were others who didn't run. And I stood up. I was about the last. No one seemed in any rush to get out of there. They were walking casually. It was far more the station attendants who were yelling, Please walk faster. Get outside. I couldn't see any danger. No explosion or anything. The station attendants were all in a panic, but not the passengers. There were still a lot of people lingering in the station, trying to decide what to do. The people who'd collapsed didn't even twitch. Had they passed out? Were they dead? Some had their feet in the train and their bodies on the platform and had to be dragged out. I still didn't sense any real danger. I don't know why. In retrospect, that seems odd. Why wasn't I afraid? But then, neither was anyone else. I decided to walk to Yarakuchu Station to take the Yamanote line to Shibuya, and then go by bus to Hirio. But the more I walked, the worse I felt. By the time I boarded the Yamanote line, I felt I was done for. Everything was such an effort. The smell had penetrated my clothes, but somehow I had to make it to the Shibuya bus terminal. I knew for certain I'd run into someone from work there. Lots of our people commute by bus from Shibuya, but if I collapsed on the train, no one would help me. I had to get to the Shibuya bus stop, even if I had to crawl all the way. I got off the train at Shibuya and somehow managed to cross at the lights and reach the bus stop where my legs just gave out. I sat on the sidewalk and leaned back against the handrail with my legs stuck out. Nobody looks that wasted in the morning, do they? Except maybe drunks, which is why no one spoke to me. They saw me lying there and just assumed I'd been out on the town all night in Shibuya. Finally, someone from work came along and spoke to me, but I couldn't speak. I could barely breathe. My voice was like some old alcoholics with a paralysed tongue. In any case, I couldn't translate my thoughts into words. I tried to speak, but nothing came across. Since I couldn't explain, I just wanted any kind of help at all, but no one seemed to understand. I was getting a chill, colder and colder, just unbearable. Then another older colleague came by, and as fate would have it, he'd taken the Hibiyu line as well. He asked me, Hey, did you get caught up in all that business at Chizuki? 
He put two and two together. I don't remember how long it was before my work colleague found me, but I do remember being furious at all the people who pretended not to see me lying there. Assholes! How can human beings be so cold? Someone's in agony right there in front of them, and they don't say a word. They just avoid you. If I'd been in their place, I'd have said something. And if there's someone looking ill on the train, I always say, Are you okay? Want to sit down? But not most people. I really learned that the hard way. The sad thing is, most of us will not be surprised by this account. It is almost a daily occurrence to walk past a homeless person or a beggar in the street. We become conditioned to not looking out for one another, unless the situation is immediately obvious and threatening. If you witness a car hit a pedestrian crossing the road, you will invariably run over to assist. But if you happen upon someone lying on the side of the road, would you be so quick to act? The effect has been made notorious in China in recent years and has in part contributed to the institution of a social credit system designed to improve the behaviour and empathy of Chinese citizens. Perhaps the most well-known episode, although there have been many, occurred in 2011, when a four-year-old girl was knocked down by a van. As she lay immobile in the road, security camera footage captured no less than 18 people walk and cycle past her limp body. One individual even walked around the girl. She was eventually struck a second time by another vehicle, and tragically, this time she did not survive. The situation in the Chinese culture is perhaps more difficult to explain, involving notions of Confucianism and the belief that it is better to mind one's own business and not to get involved. And this may stem from years of famine and oppression where society evolved to be dog-eat-dog, or perhaps there is more at play. But the principle of social proof remains. Society dictates the collective behaviour of the group. It is just the way it is. We'll pick this up again next week when we conclude with the final three of Robert Cialdini's six principles of influence. But until then, it might pay to keep in mind his antidote to inaction and the bystander effect. If you are in need of help or come upon a situation where no one is taking action, be assertive. Point to someone and ask them directly. You, go and get a first aid kit from that service station. You, call the emergency number immediately. And you, pass me your bottle of water. Just as social proof can lead to collective inaction, the opposite is also true. When the group is snapped out of its stupor, they are far more useful than the individual can ever be. So take charge and lead the response. It could save someone's life one day, maybe even your own. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.